You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. In the movie Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie are married assassins working for competing agencies who repeatedly try to kill each other off. Sweetheart. You have an unusual problem, Jane. You obviously won't be dead. And I'm less and less concerned for your well-being. So what do we do? Mm. Come on, sweetheart. Come to daddy. Who's your daddy now? Still alive, baby? In real life, Pitt and Joe Lee are involved in another kind of fight, a drawn-out custody battle over their five minor children. And Joe Lee has won the latest round, winning a court decision that means the custody fight, which was nearing an end, could just be getting started. Joining me is celebrity divorce attorney Christopher Melcher of Walter Melcher. To put this into context, this is a custody fight that's been going on for something like five years. One of the kids is already is 19 and not subject to custody arrangements. So this has been going on for a long time. It is. The divorce started in 2016, and they've been fighting over custody from the beginning with allegations by Angelina that there was you know, some kind of violent or abusive problem on an airplane. And that led to investigations and I think some monitored visitation that Brad had submitted to. And it's just been going on and on uh, for five years, which is, is just damaging to kids. I've heard about divorce where there is a custody battle and then years later, you know, there's a renewed custody battle to change the visitation schedule or whatever. Has this been just going on continually? This is the first time there's been a decision in the case? So the case has had different facets to it. There was the terminating their marital status to restore them as single people. There was dealing with some property issues. And then custody has been coming in and out of the case over the years. There was a request by Brad last year for equal custody time. And that's when Angelina really started to 
oppose this and was also being criticized by the judge going back to 2018, I believe, of her refusal to share more custody time with Brad. Understandably, Angelina is claiming that it wouldn't be safe for the kids to be with Brad so much time. That's her view of the world. The judge didn't agree with that and wanted Brad to have more custody time. And it was after the judge was making those moves that Angelina sought to disqualify the judge. I understand in cases where a parent claims the other is abusive, that sometimes they need to go in and fight for custody and it can go on for a long time. But a parent needs to see that the cost of the litigation, the harm that's done by an ongoing custody dispute in it of itself has an effect on kids. So a California appeals court agreed with Joe Lee that the private judge deciding who gets custody of the children should be disqualified because he failed to sufficiently disclose business relationships with Pitt's attorneys. First of all, what exactly is a private judge? In California, under our constitution, our state constitution, the parties to a case may agree to the appointment of a temporary judge. This is usually somebody who's a retired public judge, as in the case of Judge Outerkirk here, or it can be an attorney with 10 or more years of experience. So our law allows for the appointment of a decision maker, and the superior court, our trial court, would then appoint that person to serve and be granted pretty much all the powers that a regular judge would have. And that's commonplace in bigger cases because the parties get to select someone who they think would be fair and who is experienced in the type of matter that they have. It gives the parties the full attention of that judicial officer rather than going to public court who may have 20 matters on their calendar per day. It's just really talking about minutes rather than hours that can be spent on each case. So this is something that's a feature of pretty much every celebrity case and certainly the big dollar cases, they are using these temporary judges. But the controversy is that they're paid. And does this create two systems of justice, one for the very wealthy and one for everybody else? And so there has been debate over the years about this. And we saw it crop up in this opinion by the California Court of Appeal that's been critical of that system. And how much are these private judges paid? So the parties can select this temporary judge by agreement, so it cannot be forced on a party. And the hourly rates for a private judge in California would range from $500 to maybe $1,000 an hour. And that's pretty much in line with what these parties would be paying their counsel. And just depends on how long the case would go on. We've seen certainly hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees be paid to a temporary judge and even millions of dollars in fees in the very long cases. It sounds like a lot of money and certainly is to pay this decision maker, but there is a cost of going to public court for the parties, not 
really in paying the court, of course, but a cost to the litigants of having to pay their attorneys and expert witnesses for a hearing that may never happen. It actually could cost them less money to pay this temporary judge to hear their matter rather than the uncertainty of going to a public court and wasting perhaps many, many thousands of dollars for a hearing that never went forward. So the custody battle has been going on for about five years. Judge Outerkirk makes a tentative decision giving Pitt joint custody of the children, and Jolie says the judge has a conflict. But he officiated at their wedding, so both parties know him. I don't know how he found himself in that role, but he officiated their marriage, and then he was selected to officiate their divorce. He was agreed upon by counsel by both parties when they appointed him years ago. And when they selected Judge Outerkirk, he was obligated to make a disclosure of other cases that Judge Outerkirk had with the counsel for either party, and he made that disclosure. Judge Outerkirk disclosed that he had some cases with Brad's counsel, and he also had some cases with Angelina's counsel at the time, Laura Wasser. And they were all fine with that knowledge that Judge Outerkirk was handling cases for counsel for other parties that either Brad or Angelina's counsel were representing them in those other matters for compensation. Judge Outerkirk's appointment was given for a limited duration, and each time that expired, he was reappointed by further agreement of the parties, and he made some further disclosures of other cases that he had with counsel for either party. Eventually, Laura Wasser exits, and Angelina is now represented by a different lawyer who's in San Francisco. And after Judge Outerkirk had been reappointed, his appointment order went through December 31, 2020, or until a judgment of custody was made, whichever was later. So he had been appointed. He made his disclosures at the time. And after Brad had filed for joint custody, Angelina's new lawyer, innocently, apparently, asked for an updated disclosure out of the blue, even though the appointment order was not coming up for renewal. And Judge Oderkirk responded with two or three additional matters that he had with Brad's counsel, and that's when Angelina cried foul. It smacked of strategy and tactics, and this was noted by Brad's counsel and even by one of the justices at the Court of Appeal argument. There was a comment that why was it okay for Angelina to accept Judge Outerkirk knowing that he had 12 prior paid assignments by Brad's counsel, but it was not okay when she learned it might be 14 or 15. And I thought that remark was cynical critical of Angelina's position that would have been telegraphing that she was raising really a technical argument, not an ethical breach. But the appeals court found that he had committed an ethical breach that might cause an objective person aware of all the facts reasonably to entertain a doubt as to the judge's ability to be impartial. Why did they come to that decision, considering all that you've told us? 
That's what makes cases unpredictable, that the court could have found that the failure to disclose these two or three additional matters were technical, weren't enough to cause a reasonable person to entertain doubt as to Judge Outerkirk's impartiality. And that was what I was foolishly predicting would happen, because why would a reasonable person entertain doubt as to Judge Outerkirk's impartiality, knowing that there were 12 disclosed matters that Angelina and her legal team was accepting of, and then adding these two or three other matters that were really of the same type would all of a sudden cast doubt as to whether Judge Outerkirk could be impartial. It makes no sense to me but I'm not the decision maker. And the Court of Appeals said that every matter essentially could count and that these matters count and that this was an ethical breach. I think what's happening behind the scenes is more of a criticism of the private judging system than anything that Judge Outerkirk himself did. Because if we just look at it on the facts of this case, I would think it's more of a technical than an ethical breach. And we do have the criticism in the opinion of the private judging system. And this may have been a message to private judges that if you're going to undertake this work and be paid for it, which the Court of Appeals seemed uneasy with that concept, that they better follow the rules to the T. And they're the Court of Appeal. They get to make the rules. And that's what they said. And tell us about the concurring opinion. Justice Siegel wrote a concurring opinion to express his reservations about the private judging system. And he wrote separately because that wasn't an issue that was even raised by Angelina in her briefing. Angelina was attacking Judge Outerkirk's failure to disclose. She said that Judge Outerkirk was biased against her because he had wanted Brad to have equal custody time despite this prior alleged incident and wouldn't let the children testify at a hearing. But she never attacked the private judging system because she had agreed to that system. Justice Siegel, on his own, brought up this question of, can we pay a private judge? So what happens now? Do they pick another private judge and go through all the proceedings again? So Judge Outerkirk has been disqualified, and the decision that Judge Outerkirk had made about joint custody for Brad never became final and is certainly void. Angelina, in her briefing, was careful to say that she was okay with what Judge Outerkirk was doing before he failed to disclose these two or three additional matters and was really offended just by the actions that he took after he failed to disclose those matters and was making that argument, I believe, because she wanted to preserve the other rulings that Judge Outerkirk had made, including divorcing them. And if Judge Outerkirk's rulings were invalidated from the get-go, well, they would still be married to each other, and all the property division orders, everything else in the case would also be invalidated. So I don't think she wanted that. There will be a new judge appointed. That judge will be a public judge, unless Angelina and Brad agree to another privately compensated judge. And that will have to go back, L.A. Superior Court for assignment, and delay would benefit Angelina because the status quo is the parenting plan that exists right now, which presumably is in her favor in terms of the amount of time that she's allocated. And so the longer it goes on, the longer she has that time. Thanks, Chris. That's Christopher Melcher of Waltzer Melcher. 
Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Progressive groups seeking to remake the Supreme Court had hoped to spend this summer helping win confirmation of what was expected to be the first black woman nominated as a justice. Instead, Justice Stephen Breyer opted not to retire, and advocates who are focused on the court's conservative bent have watched their issue mostly recede from view. Joining me is Madison Alder, Bloomberg Law Reporter. What were the progressives focused on before the end of the Supreme Court term? So this past term, the issue of Breyer's retirement has really been front and center for progressive organizations like Demand Justice, which is a progressive judicial advocacy group, really put this in the front of people's minds. They, you know, had a billboard bus that was circling the Supreme Court calling for Breyer to retire, and and that would make room for Biden to appoint the first Black woman justice, which he he said he would do on the campaign trail. But when the term came to a close, and, you know, Breyer, in an interview with CNN, said he's, he's happy where he is on the court, and he hasn't made any decision on retirement, that kind of closed the door on this pretty persuasive rallying cry for progressives or a pretty strong rallying cry for progressives that Biden had an opportunity here to appoint the first black woman justice. And now that leaves open uh, the possibility of, of other areas for progressives to try to get the attention of their constituencies and, and try to keep the focus on the court. You know, we should point out that even if Breyer had retired, it would have just been substituting one liberal justice for another. It wouldn't have made any change in the conservative majority on the court. Right. Brian Fallon, who is the executive director of Demand Justice, told me that they never had any illusions about Breyer retiring and being replaced, necessarily making an impact in some of the broader structural changes they'd like to see in the judiciary, right? Like you said, it's replacing a liberal justice with a liberal justice. They're also interested in seeing the Supreme Court expanded and some of these changes coming about. Um, so this was something that might have helped at the margins, but in their eye, it wasn't the end of the line. Now, it, what's interesting is Demand Justice is working with some student groups now? So Fallon told me that the way that they're looking at keeping the attention on the court is by focusing on the next term, which is already shaping up to, you know, deal with some pretty hot button issues like abortion and gun rights um, and possibly affirmative action. And so through those issues, Demand Justice is teaming up with student groups like March for Our Lives and Sunrise Movement uh, to really highlight some of these issues going forward and kind of fire up their base. Are they anticipating that the decisions are not going to be what liberals would want to see? I think that's the position advocacy groups typically take in these kinds of scenarios. And there is a hot button issue, and especially given the 6-3 majority, conservative majority at the Supreme Court, 
they are always going to advocate for um, the fact that they could possibly get the result that they're looking for in these cases. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to happen, but, you know, if the justices vote uh, maybe in line with the political parties that appointed them, that, that could be the result. One group, She Will Rise. I hadn't heard of this group before. Tell me about that group. So She Will Rise is an initiative that was first started and incubated under demand justice, as it was described to me. And then it has moved under a, a new organization called Take Creative Control. Um, and it is squarely focused on advocacy surrounding appointing the first Black woman justice to the Supreme Court. So some of their work has been uh, painting a mural in, in the Shaw neighborhood of, of Washington, D.C., um, that depicts Black women and the Supreme Court and kind of envisioning this idea of a Black woman justice. Um, they also collected you know, a huge group photo um, of a whole bunch of Black girls who were dressed in judicial robes to kind of show what the future would look like for the court. And so their advocacy is kind of in that vein. And Kim Tigner, who, who co-founded this organization, told me um, that they're, they're planning on keeping the focus on that by supporting Biden's judicial nominees, many of which have been Black women, um, and kind of supporting this pipeline that's building for Black women judges and creating the foundation for the first Black woman justice on the Supreme Court. And they're also focusing on the clerks at the Supreme Court. Do they get demographic information about the law clerks that the justices employ? So that's not something that the court typically readily gives out, but um, it's one of the areas she said it was an example of, of something that her organization is going to, you know, prompt the Supreme Court on is going to ask about demographic information about clerks, because that is, as she explained it, a pipeline in itself to becoming a future justice. So Madison, Brian Fallon of Demand Justice said he expects more people to call on Breyer to step down next summer. So likely these calls are going to take place again when there is another opportunity for, for Breyer to retire. Of course, he could retire at any point but it is more likely that he would do this at the end of a Supreme Court term. And when that happens, uh, Ballin said he could see potentially more people getting on board with this, more Democrats getting on board with this, um, because their biggest critics uh, during this past session were uh, people who said, give Breyer space, give him the benefit of the doubt, maybe he will retire. And in, in Fallon's view, uh, those people now might be a little bit more uh, willing to call on him to retire now that he has already not done it once. So they believe that calls will grow at the end of next term. After the CNN interview, it seems like, you know, Breyer is not even considering retirement at this point and loving the role he's in, which is remarkably similar to what happened with the late... Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who became the leader of the liberal bloc and held on to it. And there's nothing that can be done to force him to retire. Right. This is ultimately Breyer's decision. And as he said in that interview, you know, he's happy where he is. But since then, um, on, on CNN again, Amy Klobuchar, Senator Amy Klobuchar, uh, she 
you know, kind of uh, said Breyer should should potentially think about retiring as soon as possible. Um, so, you know, it's already something that, that we're seeing uh, Democrats continue to talk about, even if the calls don't feel uh, like this is something that could immediately take place now. Yeah, because uh, are liberals disappointed in the commission that's been set up by the White House to examine issues surrounding the court? Well, there certainly have been some criticisms of this commission. Um, early on, there were criticisms that uh, they were potentially going to talk about issues and not really come to any solutions. The commission is set up to to not give recommendations specifically. It's going to do an exploration of a lot of the reforms that could happen at the Supreme Court, but not necessarily uh, be prescriptive to to the president. Um, so that was that was something that I think some of these groups have taken issue with. Um, but more recently, uh, you know, we've seen now that we've we've had witnesses come before the commission and um, they've done more public facing meetings. Uh, there have been criticisms that it isn't very reflective of the people that the Supreme Court decisions impact most and looks a lot like an academic conference. Um, a lot of the people attended the same law schools. Um, there was actually a few moments in some of the recent hearings where someone was speaking to their former professor um, or their former student. It happened a couple of times at the most recent hearing. And advocates say that you know this is an issue because this is an urgent issue, the issue of the, of the Supreme Court um, and, and not being representative of the American public. And if uh, they want to create a solution, they should include people who are most impacted by this decision. It seems that packing the court is the only way they're really going to change the conservative majority on the court, at least to me. But it's such an uphill battle. Do the progressive groups you've talked to really have any hope that that could be accomplished, that they could pack the court? So I spoke a little bit to to Brian Fallon about this. Again, he's the executive director at, at Demand Justice. And he told me that they know that this isn't something immediate, right? The the 60 vote threshold is for legislation is still in place in, in the Senate, and it doesn't look like that's going anywhere for the time being. So Democrats can't just approve uh, an expansion of the Supreme Court on their own. They would likely need Republican support, and that is not going to happen. So they know that this is something that, that they aren't going to achieve in the short term. But he sees it as, as a long-term goal, you know, maybe similar to uh, the way that uh, the calls to get rid of the legislative filibuster have been uh, increasing over, over the years, maybe support among Democrats for court reform and especially for Supreme Court expansion would grow over time. You know, you always hear about demand justice, but there's another advocacy group, Alliance for Justice, that's been around a lot longer, and the founder is going to leave after 42 years? So Nan Aaron, who is the founder of the Alliance for Justice, is uh, stepping down. She announced this in January. It's going to be effective in September. And um, she's going to be replaced with Rakeem Brooks, who is an ACLU strategist. And he's going to be taking over over that role and, and over the organization, which is a really key organization for progressives when it comes to 
judiciary issues, including judicial nominations. And Nan Aaron has definitely been a, a, a prominent figure in the judicial nomination space for, for liberals. So you have Demand Justice, Alliance for Justice. What other liberal or progressive judicial advocacy groups are there out there? On the court reform side, there is Take Back the Court. That is an organization that is also pushing for Supreme Court reform and um, specifically pushing for, you know, basically anything that would expand or create term limits, that sort of thing. And then you also have um, People's Parity Project, which is mostly a student-led and young lawyer-led group. Um, They're fairly new. They have been pretty vocal uh, in the last few months on the Breyer front and also on judicial nominations, um, pushing for for more diversity in those nominations. So I think those are kind of the, the four that come to mind for me, at least, Demand Justice, Alliance for Justice take back the court and people's parody project. Thanks for being on the show, Madison. That's Madison Alder, Bloomberg Law reporter. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, the Justice Department is refusing to defend Republican Representative Mo Brooks in a lawsuit over the Capitol riot. I'm June Grasso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not uh, as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcasts. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.